You are listening to the Long Hollow Podcast. For more information on Long Hollow or to watch a video version of this podcast, visit www.longhollow.com. We're continuing through the book of Philippians with a message entitled, A Win-Win Situation. And I don't know about you, but I like those kind of odds. Amen. You know what I also like to see? Young people worshiping in the front at Long Hollow. Amen. Anybody, anybody love that, right? If we could take a, a page from the worship of our, of our, our students and uh, those in ministry here at Long Hollow. Uh, I, I love those odds because I like to win, right? Nobody likes to lose. It reminds me of the 1963 show that aired for the first time called Let's Make a Deal. Anybody remember that show? For the first time on daytime television. And basically the premise of the show is this. The host would go into the crowd and find, quote, traitors who they would ask to join on the podium or the platform, and they would give them prizes that were worth a certain amount. And then they would ask them, would you want to trade what you have in your hand for potentially what's behind door number one, right? Or curtain number two. And the risk was that if they were risk takers, they could trade it for something of equal value, possibly lesser value, maybe more value, but they never knew. And it reminds us of the question we have to ask ourselves. How many of you in here are actual risk takers? That you say, you know what? I would rather roll the dice and gamble what I have to make even more. Anybody a risk, raise your hand. Risk takers in here? Okay, not many risk takers in here, right? How many people are saying, you know what? I'm a little more cautious. I don't like to lose what I've earned or what I have. So I'd rather keep it and not lose anything. Who would say I'm a little more cautious, okay? Now, here's what's cool about the Christian life. Thank God those are not the odds in our favor, right? In the Christian life, according to the gospel, we win either way, right? Paul says whether we live for Christ, that's a win, or whether we die for Christ, that's also a win. And so as Christians, we win no matter what happens. And Paul's gonna show us in the book of Philippians, if you have a Bible, I hope you do, turn with me to Philippians chapter one, and we'll just kind of walk through uh, Philippians and when we get to a stopping point in a couple of weeks, we'll take a detour and we'll come back to Tokyo Drift next year. Philippians, Tokyo Drift. For those who know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about, but anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Philippians chapter one, verse 21. We like to say word at Long Hollow. We believe it's the word that changes our life. So if you're at home or you're in person here, you can say word. The word of the Lord. For me, Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart to be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul's gonna teach us right out the gate that if we're gonna live, we should honor Christ with our life. If, if we're gonna live as believers, we should honor Christ with our life. Now here's what he's gonna teach us, and he teaches it here, and he teaches it all through scripture. There is a theological principle that is called in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? This is a term or a phrase Paul uses a lot. The moment you and I surrendered our life, the moment we were converted as a Christian, we went from death to old self and alive to God, we were in a sense in Christ. What that means is this, Christ permanently takes up residence in your heart. 
The Holy Spirit moves his bags into your life in a sense. And so Christ lives in you and you live in Christ. Now, Paul's gonna talk about this in a, different, in a bunch of different places. Second, uh, Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 17, watch what he says. And this is a familiar verse. Therefore, if anyone is, say it with me, in Christ, that's the idea, you're in Christ, Christ is in you, he or she is a new creation, the old things have passed away, and see, the new has come. Galatians chapter 2.20, another familiar voice verse. I have been crucified with Christ, and I myself no longer live, but Christ lives in me, or I'm in Christ. Now, what does this look like, Paul? Well, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So for Paul, what he's saying is, if I'm gonna live, I'm gonna honor Christ with my life. Now let me ask you, are you honoring Jesus with your life? Can you say like Paul, for me to live is Christ? Well, let's just do a simple exercise and I want you to fill in the blank. By your own omission, don't say it out loud, just think about it. What would the answer to this question be? For me to live is blank. Better yet, what would your spouse say about you? For my husband, my wife, to live is blank. What would, your, what would the coworkers say? For Julie, to live is blank. For Jeff, to live is blank. What would your neighbor say about you? For Mike, to live is blank. This one I know about Susan. For her, to live is blank. Here's a better one. What, what, what would your kids say about you? For dad, to live is Blank, for mom to live is blank. Sadly, for many of us, we would say to live is, is our hobbies. To, to, to live is college football. To live is fame. To live is all about my image. To live is about popularity. To, to live is about money. To live is about fishing or fornication or gender identity or sexual uh, prominence in my life. And we would say a lot of different things about what we live for. Now, what we're gonna learn is the line between our commitment to Jesus and our commitment to things or hobbies or sports or social media sometimes is blurry. Now, now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you can't have these things. I'm not saying that you can't pursue sports. I'm not saying that you can't enjoy the things of life. I'm not saying you can't possess things. What I'm saying is, look at me, those things in this world should not possess you. A diagnostic question that is very helpful, and God's used this in my own life, and we use this as a staff, and We'll unveil these in the future, just diagnostic questions to determine where we are with God. This is a great one, so this is a point to write down uh, if you're writing notes. Here's the point, here's the question. What controls my time and attention? It's a great question. Ask yourself this, what God, ask the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, tell me, what controls my time and my attention? Now, you don't have to tell me, it'd be easy for me to tell you if you just hand over your cell phone after the service. I mean, right? I mean, I could just look at your Instagram feed and tell you what controls your attention. I could take a look at your Facebook page and I could tell you 
what controls your interest. If you give me access to your text messages, I can tell you what is important to you. Just let me log into your email account. I can look at the emails you said. I can look at the past video history of YouTube or on Vimeo. I can look at the things you watched on DVR last night or even all the recordings, and I can tell you what you stand for. Here's the question. If someone were to look at those things in your life, would they say, that sister, honors Christ in the way they talk, in the way they think, in the way they act. That, that brother there really puts Jesus first in all that he or she does. Would they be able to say that about you? You know, years ago, uh, years ago, before I was even a believer, there was this saying that came out, which is actually a pretty helpful saying, and it's this phrase, uh, WWJD. Do y'all remember this? Anybody remember this? How many remember when it first came out, okay? I didn't, it was before I was a Christian, but I, I learned it later. I'm like, man, this is awesome. They're like, yeah, that's like 10 years ago. But anyway, it was new to me. And it was a great principle, here's what it meant. It meant that when you would get into a situation that you had a question on how to act, how to talk, how to respond, how to tweet, how to comment, then you would ask the question, what would Jesus do in this situation? And if you're like me, 99% of the times, it would not be what I wanted to do, right? It was like, don't do that. Jesus would do something else. But the better question is not WWJD. The better question is WDJD. Write this down, WDJD. What did Jesus do? <laughs> we don't have to ask what would Jesus do. We already know what Jesus did, right? We just look at the gospel. And the question we need to ask ourselves is this. What did Jesus do that we need to do? How did Jesus live in such a way that I need to imitate? Here's the way to think of it. If Jesus had your bank account, your house, your car, your spouse, your children, your parents, your family, your neighborhood, and your possessions, and drove your car with your money, what kind of life would he live? And the reality is Paul would say he does. Because if you're in Christ and Christ is in you, he's in you. If Jesus were a plumber today, what kind of plumber would he be if you're a plumber? If Jesus was a salesman today, what kind of salesman would he be if he was a salesman? If Jesus was a stay-at-home mom today, what kind of, stay you see where I'm going here? And what Paul is showing us is a principle I want us to get. He's showing us this. Our faith as Christians is always personal, always. always. It has to be. I was raised in a different religion where the faith was not personal. It was disconnected and isolated. But now as a born-again believer, you know, faith is personal, but here's the caveat, it's never private. Always personal, never private. Meaning that when you believe in Jesus, it's what's on the inside comes on the outside. And we like to say it this way, there's no secret service Christians in the economy of God, right? There's no undercover believers in Jesus's kingdom, right? And I would say it this way, if, if you're not laboring for Christ outwardly, I would question if you're living for Christ inwardly. And the word there, I use choice word, labor. What that means is that it's more than just one to one and a half hours on Sunday. That's not laboring for Christ. Now, we love the fact that you come listen about Christ on Sunday, which is awesome. But friends, let me just remind you, this is not the end zone. This is not the, the end of the season. What, what this is on Sunday, I want you to figure this out. This isn't the end, this is the halftime speech 
that I'm gathering the team together and I'm saying, hey, listen, I know it's been a tough week, but let me mobilize you. Let me launch you back out. Let me equip you to go back and fight the battle because there's still a battle to be won, amen? And the battle's not to shrink back or give up or throw in the towel and say, I'm done. No, the battle is Jesus changed me to be different so that I can make a difference in the world. And you don't come here just to back out and, and leave it here. You actually come here so you can go back out there. And so if that's the case, coming close, every person in here is in one of two categories, everybody. If your faith is personal and public, then one of two categories. Every person in here is either leading someone to Jesus or leading people to Jesus or you're leading people away from Jesus. But there's no in between. So as you look at the landscape of your life, what would you say? When people look at my life at Hunter or, or Station Camp or Liberty Creek or, or Madison Creek or Hendersonville or Gallatin, when they see my life, are they drawn to Jesus or are they turn, turning away from Jesus? When they go to my workplace, they see me in the neighborhood, they see me grilling out in the backyard, they see me at a football game or a basketball game or a baseball, do they turn to Jesus, do they desire Jesus or do they disdain him? Paul would say, we need to not only honor Jesus with our life, number two, we need to trust Jesus in our death. We need to trust Christ in our, in our death. Now he's gonna share this line we read earlier, which is a fascinating line, and there's one word I wanna drill down on. We're gonna double click on this word. This is an interesting word. Verse 23, I am torn between the two, to stay or go. I long to depart, circle this word, I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Now, the reason Paul, because this makes no sense, the reason Paul desires death more than life, fascinating, is because he knows the one who's conquered death and given us life. He knows that. And so for Paul, it's not about just going to heaven where naked babies are flying with wings on their back, singing endless praise songs and visiting past family members who have passed on. That's not, that's probably not heaven anyway with the babies and the wings, but the other part is probably right. But th that's not what heaven is for Paul. See, for Paul, heaven was about one thing. In fact, it was about one person. That's all heaven was for Paul. Paul said, I can't wait to be in heaven to be with who? Jesus. For Paul, heaven meant an up close and personal relationship with a person named Jesus. And so for Paul, he viewed death differently than us. Why? Because here's what he says, my longing, the deepest desire of my heart. This is the thing that wakes me up in the morning and keeps me up at night. I want to depart to be with Jesus. I don't know many Christians who would say that today. I mean, we like Jesus. We wanna to go to heaven at the end of life, but I don't know if I wanna leave right now, right? But that's not Paul. Paul, I long for, I can't wait to be with Jesus. Now, this word depart is a fascinating word if you do a word study. If you, if you drill down on the word depart, it's actually, you're gonna love this, a nautical term that is used to describe the action of taking the ropes off the dock of a ship, throwing the rope on the bow, and then pushing the ship out to sea to sail. That's the word, depart. 
So it's actually the means of the vehicle by which you go from one place to another. So for Paul, death was not an end in itself. Death was a vehicle of transportation to a destination. Interesting, right? That's what death was. And that's the reason Paul could say, I'm not scared of death. I'm not anxious about dying because I know what death is. Now, I learned this when I went on my first cruise ship and last cruise ship experience. Anybody with me? Anybody get seasick? Anybody get seasick? I learned that in the bottom of that boat on day four, and I was literally ready to stay in Jamaica. I'm like, babe, just leave me here. I'll paddle home. I don't want to get back on that boat, right? Anyway, but we made it home, and that was the last trip I went on. But anyway, we went on this trip, and I'd never been on a cruise before. Anybody been on a cruise ship? Pretty awesome, by the way. Other than the seasickness part, it's pretty amazing, right? I mean, it's pretty awesome. I mean, you eat a lot and you hang out. And so we got on the, I remember on the, on the deck of the boat, Candy was there with some friends of ours. We had this little rail there and over the rail was the, was the port and they pushed us out to sea. And we just stayed there as we went out into the water. And I remember just staying there for a while. It was just an amazing, the sun was coming down. And we noticed that when it got dark, the further out we went from the East Coast, we were heading to the Caribbean, the further out we got to sea, the smaller the lights got on the shore. And eventually those lights got so dim, we could barely see them and eventually they went out. You can picture it. The reason I tell you that is the next morning we woke up, we went to bed and the night before we were in this murky, dark East Coast water on the Eastern shore of Florida, no offense to Florida. But when we woke up, we were docked on an amazing, beautiful island. I'd never seen anything like it. And when we looked over the bow of the boat, we noticed we were in crystal clear blue water. Never seen anything like it. And in one moment, it was almost like we went from another world, one world to the next. And I tell you that to say, most people who have had near-death experiences will say that is exactly what happens to them. If you read about it. Or, or, or go on the internet or read books. There's books about people who've had near-death near experiences where they've actually said they've encountered a light or felt like they came in the presence of God. And what they would say is they have this bright light and then the bright light gets really dark and it starts to dim and then the light goes out and the next thing you know, boom, they're in the presence of God. Friends, listen to me. As a believer, I have good news today. When you die as a believer... It is not replaced, your death is not replaced with the Caribbean, it's actually replaced with the Galilean. His name is Jesus, amen, right? I mean, don't, don't, I don't think y'all heard that. A Galilean, right? I mean, when you stand in the presence of God at death, you're gonna be in the presence of Jesus. And that's what Paul says. It's not just better if I die, he uses this word, it is far better if I die. Remember, Paul's not interested in streets of gold and freedom from sin and seeing past relatives, although all that's good. And by the way, do you know why the Bible says streets of gold? You ever thought about this? Interesting little sidebar here. You ever when we hear about it, Revelation, you'll walk on streets of gold. Do you know what that means? What the writer of the, uh, of the, of the, uh, the, the letter is showing us is this. Why would you think that gold streets would be in heaven. He's communicating something amazing to us. The most precious metal on earth will be the very pavement of heaven. 
The very thing we have treasured on earth will be the thing we trample on in heaven. Why? Because there's only one person who is precious in heaven and his name is Jesus and there's only one person deserving of our worship and it's him, right, amen? And I don't know about you, but the longer I talk and even think about that, I cannot wait for the day, picture it, when our faith will be sight and we will be in his presence forever and evermore. Paul says, because of all that, I live this way. I live with eternity in mind. Now, why do I say that? Because I'm gonna teach you what happens at the moment of salvation when God stamps your spiritual passport to live on earth. Now, Paul's gonna say it a little different, verse 27. He's gonna say it this way. Paul says, this one thing, now that's fascinating because Paul's already said about seven things and he's gonna say another 40 things after this, but he, he says this one. Now he's not saying this one thing. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you wanna know the secret to why I can endure death and take earth and both be winning uh, odds in my life? Here's why, because I know this. We need to know that we are citizens of heaven and live our life worthy of the gospel of Christ, that whether Paul said, I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit. That's a beautiful picture of an athlete or, or, or really a soldier who has spikes in his shoes, immovable, unshakable in the battle. Friends, more than ever before, we don't need men and women who are gonna shrink back, shut up, or throw in the towel. Amen? We need people who are gonna stand up for what is right and let the results fall with God. We need to stand firm in one spirit with one accord, the body of Christ, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by our opponents. Why? Because if you kill us, we win. If we live, we win. I, I, I left this out the other ser sermons, but I'll put it in here because I got time. The idea I thought about was, this is the beauty of the eleven. No time period. And y'all don't worry about lunch, so it doesn't matter. But anyway, <laughs> I thought about the Roman soldier. I mean, think about this. He comes in one day. He's like, oh, bad news, Paul. They're going to chop your head off tomorrow. Paul said, great. Let's get it over with. I'm ready. <laughs> the next day he comes in. Hey, Paul, got some good news for you. You're going to live. You're, gonna live. You're not going to die. Great. Let's get that over with. You know what I mean? It's like, Paul, it's like, they're like, what is wrong with this guy? It doesn't matter what you tell him. And Paul knows this principle, for it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to have a successful, prosperous life. Is that what it says? Also to be famous and rich and wealthy and healthy. Is that what it says? No, no. It's been granted to you. It has been given to you as a grace gift. Grace gift. It's been gifted to you to suffer for him since you're engaged in the same struggle that you saw I have, or I had, and now hear that I still have. I want you to get this. Every believer at the moment of, of salvation became a passport holder of heaven. At the moment of conversion, you got your passport stamped. Now, what that means is, and why that's important is, when you know who you are, your identity, it affects your activity. It affects how you live, it affects how you act, it affects how you think, right? Knowing whose you are and where you came from and where you're going affects how you travel or live. You would agree with that. It's like a passport. Whenever you go overseas, anybody ever been to a foreign country before and needed a passport? Okay. 
When you walk up to the TSA agent or the agent at the gate that's letting you into the country, the stamped uh, picture that they put on your passport is a constant reminder of one thing, that you're not from the area, that you're just a passer through, you're a visitor. It's a reminder that this is not your home. And because of that, you should automatically, you're gonna see the connection here, you're gonna automatically feel uncomfortable there. You should. You should feel uncomfortable, why? Because your citizenship is for another country or another place. You're just passing through. And so it's normal to feel kind of disoriented. I remember the first time I went overseas on a, on a foreign mission trip. I've been to Mexico uh, before, but this was the first trip where I was gonna travel overseas to Indonesia. And I'd gone on a trip with uh, David Platt. It was my first overseas trip. It was David Platt, his brother Adam, and Rob Wilton, my friend. And uh, I realized early on, after I got off that 22-hour, 23-hour travel time to get there, that I was in a foreign place. It was not home. Particularly because when I got off the plane, every person was a foot shorter than me or more, right? I, mean, I was like, wow, everybody's shorter than me. And my friend Rob was not making it easy, as everywhere he went, he was behind me saying, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Schwarzenegger. <laughs> so the Indonesian's like, Schwarzenegger? And I was like, no, I'm not Arnold Schwarzenegger. What are you talking, you know? And I realized the food was different. Not only were the people, but the food was different. And when I went there, they, they really kind of conned me into thinking, you know, when we go overseas, you gotta, it's, it's, it's really rude to the host not to eat the local food. And I was like, okay, we'll bring it on. And I mean, I could stomach, no pun intended, the, cow, the lining of the cow stomach, as we chewed on that. But it was that cow, that cow tongue that got me, you know. I just could not get that tongue. And you know, and, and my buddy leaned over and said, don't you dare spit that out, it's rude. So I just chewed on that tongue for about 30 minutes, you know, I just couldn't get the tongue down. But I realized the food was different. Transportation was different, right? It was different in a different place. Why? Because they didn't drive many, many times in cars. They rode on bicycles two and three back. The culture was different. And, and what I mean was the, 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 the hotels were different. I mean, just the places you stayed. It did take me long to realize that they didn't have beds to accommodate a 6'6 gorilla from America. I mean, it was like these little, you know, their twin was not a twin, right? And one of the things I realized was that the environment was different. And here's the big one. See, you, don't, you and I don't realize the freedom we have in this country and the privilege to worship Jesus Christ freely without the fear of persecution. And I'm telling you, we take that for granted. Over there, it's different. We were there to teach at a Christian seminary, which was a very rare thing in that country. And not only was it rare because there were a few Christians, it was a country that had 86% of the population of Surabaya Muslim. And out of the 86%, 20%, 19-20% were supposedly militant jihadist Muslim Muslims. And so here we were as Americans, four of us in this country. For the entire nine days, we did not meet one other American, not one. This was day two, we found ourselves at breakfast in the morning, I was gonna go teach at the seminary uh, right after breakfast and we were sitting there with Adam and David and Rob and I noticed out the corner of my eye, a man at a table, two tables over, staring at us. I was a little uh, nervous at first, it was kind of unnerving if you can imagine and then all of a sudden he finished his breakfast, he got up and he walked over and approached the table. And so we were sitting there and he leans down and he says, I wanna ask you boys a question. He said, are y'all Christians? I'm thinking we've been found out. How, how in the world? Do we look like Christians? You know, only Americans in the whole country, right? But anyway, he's like, y'all Christians. And I'm like, 
How did you know? And he said, because one of the guys, Adam, actually had a T-shirt that had a Bible verse on the front. Go figure, right? Like, like in America, you could hide it. It's not a big deal. But there was a Bible verse on his chest. And he says, the reason I ask is this. He said, I'm actually a believer as well. He said, I've surrendered my life to Christ. But I want you to know about the persecution that's happening right now in this country toward Christians. He said, I have a DVD. This is back in the day. <laughs> I have a DVD, a video of the persecuted church of underground footage of people being persecuted for their faith, and I would like to show that to you right now. So what do you do when you're three Americans in a foreign country by yourself, 24 hours away from home, in a hotel room where there's no other Americans? You invite this random stranger into your hotel room. I mean, that's what you do, right? It made no sense right now, but back then it made perfect sense. So he comes in the room, he shows us this video, and I'm telling you, this video had one inch, I don't remember a lot, but I do remember this one. It was the jihad training in, in, uh, in um, Indonesia. And it was the leader who was training hundreds and thousands of military men. And he had the Quran in one hand and he had a gun in the other hand. And he said, he said, you give them the book. If they don't take the book, you give them the steel. That's what he kept saying. And they would cheer. You give them the book, you give them the steel. Well, you can imagine that was pretty overwhelming for us. My first mission trip overseas. It was in my late 20s. I'd just gotten married. And we were all there and he left. And he said, whatever you do, be careful. Well, we were pretty you know, anxious when he left. And then at that moment, as he was leaving, we heard this ruckus in the hallway. It was almost like there was a fight with some of the locals and we just got nervous. And so the other guys with me looked at me and said, what are we gonna do? And I said, guys, listen, I got a plan. Now, let me just preface the plan before I tell you the plan. I was only a Christian that I mentioned for about three years. So although I was changed, I still had some bad habits from the world of fighting and the, the, and the sense of the, that I still had some plans from the past. So I just prefaced that with this, why I came up with this. I said, guys, I got a plan. Here's the plan. David, Adam, Rob, if we get attacked, you take out the little guys and let me have the big guys. And we'll be fine. I'll just take out the big guys. Y'all attack the little guys and we'll be fine. And so they're like, okay, perfect. That's a wonderful plan. That's what we'll do. Because we thought we were going to be attacked at that moment. And David Platt decides to speak up. And Platt says, well, what happens in the fight if one of the guys dies from the country? He's like, what are you talking about? What if we die from the country? David said, well, there's a difference. If we die, we go to heaven. If they die, they go to hell. It's like, you gotta get all spiritual. What are you wrong with you, man? Gonna get all spiritual, right? But he had a point, right? And we threw the plan out the window. And here's when I realized, I'll tell you the story for this reason. I knew at that moment we weren't in Kansas anymore. I knew that I was a foreigner in a foreign land and I had to depend moment by moment, day by day on the grace of God to guide and sustain me. Friends, I think you have forgotten that this world is not your home. See, we've misunderstood what Paul said here. See, we think when Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, here's what we have thought. We think that when we became a believer at that moment, God gave us a spiritual earthly passport and stamped it. And basically the stamp signifies that when the roll's called up yonder and Jesus returns a second time, our name will be called and we'll go to heaven. And we're just holding on to this stamp passport, waiting for our name to be called. And we're like, man, it's getting bad. God, oh, golly, Jesus has to be returned. Man, he's gotta come, but would you just come sooner? Come on, Jesus, we need you. And we're buying our time into the return of Christ, trying to go to a place called heaven. 
Now that theologically is totally different than what the Bible says. Because the Bible says that heaven actually begins the moment you are saved. Did you know this? Paul says it in Ephesians, you've been transferred present tense from the domain of darkness into the domain of light. The Bible says you're no longer an enemy of God, you're now called a friend of God. You're no longer a slave to sin, present tense, you are a son of the Father. You are an heir to a kingdom, right? Friends, I want you to get this. Your citizenship changes the moment you're saved. You don't wait for the kingdom to come, you bring the kingdom with you everywhere you go. And here's the sad reality of the American church, if I'm meddling, might as well keep going. So many Christians are trying to get out of earth into heaven tomorrow when God is trying to bring heaven to earth through you today. Any questions, right? That's what he's trying to do. And this is exactly why Peter is urging the believers, don't live like the world. Look what he says, 1 Peter 1, or 2.11, dear friends, I urge you, I'm, I'm begging you, live as strangers and aliens or exiles. A stranger is a guy who says, this is not the normal surroundings, it doesn't feel right. This is not my home. An exile is somebody who's gotten kicked out of the country and now come back to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Eric Reed, a pastor in town and friend of our church, said the greatest line, and I'll sum it up with this. He said, many of us have chosen heaven over hell, but we haven't chosen heaven over earth. Say that again. <laughs> many of us have chosen heaven. I'll go to heaven over hell for sure, but you want me to leave this place to go to heaven? You know why? Because we're so tethered and comfortable here. That was not Paul, I promise you. Paul knew this, listen church, Paul knew as good as this life is, it doesn't hold a candle to what's waiting on the other side of eternity, I promise you. And for those who are struggling, I hope this is an encouragement for you today. There was a book years ago written, Your Best Life Now. Remember this book? Very popular book. Written by a pastor, believe it or not. And in the book, the pastor gave kind of some self-help principles where he said, if you follow these principles, it's gonna ensure you're gonna be happy, you'll be healthy, you'll be wealthy, and you'll be satisfied if you follow these principles. And so you put these principles into practice and you'll have your best life now. Now, the only way we know from the Bible that a person can have their best life now is if they're a non-believer. Now think about that. The only way you're going to have your best life now is if you're, a, if you're an unbeliever, if you're not a Christian. I even heard one pastor criticize the book, and he said this. He said, unbelievers should go out right now and buy the book and put the principles into practice because their next life will be exponentially worse than this life. This will be their best life because it's the only life they have to live. See, as an unbeliever, listen, look at me. If you're far from God today, and you would say, hey, for me to live is not Christ, to live for me is me, then here's the promise awaiting you on the other side of eternity. The Bible says you have a life of no joy, no love, no presence of God, no answered prayer, no purpose, 
no future, no end to pain, no ceasing of suffering, no guilt removed, no shame removed. You have all of that waiting to you for you on the other side. But the good news is this, if you have confessed your sins and you know that God has saved you because you have received him into your life and he resides in your heart today, then friends, I hear, I'm here to tell you, this life is nothing compared, it's not even the same stratosphere as the next life. The Bible says, even if God would tell you, you wouldn't believe him. No ear has heard, no eye has seen the things that God has prepared for those who love him. That's what the Bible says, right? So the reason I believe that some of you, and here's, a, here's, a, here's an idea I have, and I think, it's, I think it's right. One of the reasons people we know who have started out strong or been very passionate for the Lord, or your children, at one time they were all in, in the youth group, serving God, singing in church, but now they've fallen away or turned their back on God. Could it be that they were sold a bunch of promises that weren't true? That, that someone said, listen, give your life to Jesus, man. You, you're gonna have a great life and it'll be easy and he, he'll turn it around. It's gonna be awesome. And you'll be wealthy and you'll be famous and you'll be successful. You'll be rich and you'll be popular. And the moment those things did not come true, they said, you know what? I was better off as an unbeliever, as a so-called Christian, so I'll go back to the world. Now listen, God does promise those things. I don't wanna ruin your life, ruin your prayer. God does promise all those things, but they may not come today. See, here's what he promised. He promised that if you serve me and you're faithful, there will be difficulty. There will be trouble. There's gonna be pain. There'll be persecution. People will talk about you. They'll backbite you. They'll, they'll, they'll tempt you. You'll be troubled in life. You may even die at the end of it for the gospel. But the good news is this. None of it will be wasted. It will all be used for your good and my glory. Friends, listen, for Christians, this is our worst life compared to the next one awaiting us in glory. You gotta realize this. The only way this is our best, don't miss this. The only way this is our best life now is if we go to hell at the end of it. Isn't it cool as Christians, we can rejoice like Paul, Romans 8, 18, for I am convinced, watch what he says, it's an amazing verse, for I am convinced that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us one day in the future. So here's what Paul would encourage us with. I wanna encourage you. If you're struggling for Christ, you win. If you live for Christ, it's gain. And God forbid if you die for Christ, you win. Now, I know in a group this size, there are some of you who would say, that's not me. I'm not living for Christ. I'm not sold out to Christ. I haven't surrendered to Christ. If you came to my school or you came to my job, you would see that I'm not sold out to Jesus. I'm going to ask you today to to really consider surrendering everything to Jesus. People have asked me recently, what was it that really was the difference that made the difference in your life. Why'd you go to three rehab treatments? It's because I didn't fully surrender to Jesus. And I know I'm speaking to someone right now, so I'm gonna ask you, would you just bow your head for just a moment and close your eyes with me? And I wanna pray over you because I feel like some of that has resonated with someone. And you're saying, Pastor, that's me. You, you, 
what you're saying, for me to live is not Christ, it's to live for me. And I'm not honoring Christ in my life and I'm not honoring Christ because I'm anxious about my death and I wanna live for Jesus. I wanna live with eternity in mind, I wanna make a difference, I wanna leave a legacy. And so if that, if that is you and you're saying, that's me, I want that, I wanna surrender to Jesus. Before I pray over you and pray with you, I'm gonna ask you, would you just simply just slip your hand up and say, Pastor Robbie, pray for me. Just pray, I'm not gonna embarrass you, I promise you I won't call you up. I'm not gonna call you out. Just wanna pray over you. There's something about publicly, thank you brother, acknowledging your present condition before a holy God. Thank you, brother. Anyone else? Pastor Robbie, pray for me. Maybe I'm in high school and you're talking to me. I'm a middle schooler. I haven't surrendered. Thank you, sister. Anyone else? Hands all over. Anyone else in the back? Praise God. If you're at home, you're saying, that's me. I need Jesus. I haven't lived for him. I've run from him. I need to surrender. The key word here is surrender. I'm not asking if you profess Jesus. I'm asking you if you possess Jesus, or better yet, does he possess you? Does he control you? Thank you, brother. Anyone else? Just a moment longer. Hey, pastor, just slip your hand right up. Don't be ashamed. Pastor, pray for me. I need Jesus. Praise God. You can put your hands down. Father, I pray for those who've raised hands and acknowledged before you their present situation. God, the first step to breakthrough is, is being honest. And so I'm praying right now, God, that you take note of those who've raised a hand. And I'm not asking God to make it easier. I'm asking you to show them that you're there and always makes it better, God. And when we know you're by our side and you're walking with us, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with us. You are near to us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. God, I'm praying for those who are gonna surrender today. I pray, God, that this would not be business as usual. This would not be routine or mundane. And I pray they, they're sincere about it. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you if, you, if you're praying that prayer, if you desire a relationship with Christ, would you just say something like this? Jesus, I confess that I've done some things wrong and I'm inviting you, welcoming you into my life through faith. And I'm asking you to fill me with your spirit that I may live for you. God, would you hear that prayer? And I pray for those who've prayed that prayer to not be ashamed of the decision that they're making to follow you. We love you, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, 